Section 4 of Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott Section 4 Gentle Punishment of Disobedience Part 1 Children have no natural instinct of obedience to their parents, though they have other instincts by means of which the habit of obedience as an acquisition can easily be formed. The true state of the case is well illustrated by what we observe among the lower animals. The hen can call her chicken when she has food for them, or when any danger threatens and they come to her. They come, however, simply under the impulse of a desire for food or fear of danger, not from any instinctive desire to conform to their mother's will, or in other words, with no idea of submission to parental authority. It is so substantially with many other animals whose habits in respect to the relation between parents and offspring come under human observation. The colt and the calf follow and keep near the mother, not from any instinct of desire to conform their conduct to her will, but solely from love of food or fear of danger. These last are strictly instinctive. They act spontaneously and require no training of any sort to establish or to maintain them. The case is substantially the same with children. They run to their mother by instinct, when want, fear or pain impels them. They require no teaching or training for this. But for them to come simply because their mother wishes them to come, to be controlled, in other words, by her will instead of by their own impulses, is a different thing altogether. They have no instinct for that. They have only a capacity for its development. Instincts and Capacities it may perhaps be maintained that there is no real difference between instincts and capacities, and it certainly is possible that they may pass into each other by insensible gradations. Still, practically, and in reference to our treatment of any intelligent nature which is in course of gradual development under our influence, the difference is wide. The dog has an instinct impelling him to attach himself to and follow his master. But he has no instinct leading him to draw his master's cart. He requires no teaching for the one. It comes, of course, from the connate impulses of his nature. For the other he requires a skilful and careful training. If we find a dog who evinces no disposition to seek the society of man, but roams off into woods and solitudes alone, he is useless, and we attribute the fault to his own wolfish nature. But if he will not fetch and carry at command, or bring home a basket in his mouth from market, the fault, if there be any fault, is in his master, in not having taken the proper time and pains to train him, or in not knowing how to do it. He has an instinct leading him to attach himself to a human master and to follow his master wherever he goes. But he has no instinct leading him to fetch and carry or to draw carts for anybody. If he shows no affection for man, it is his own fault. 
that is the fault of his nature. But if he does not fetch and carry well, or go out of the room when he is ordered out, or draw steadily in a cart, it is his teacher's fault. He has not been properly trained. Who is responsible? So with the child. If he does not seem to know how to take his food, or shows no disposition to run to his mother when he is hurt or when he is frightened, we may have reason to suspect something wrong, or at least something abnormal in his mental or physical constitution. But if he does not obey his mother's commands, no matter how insubordinate or unmanageable he may be, the fault does not certainly indicate anything at all wrong with him. The fault is in his training. In witnessing his disobedience, our reflection should be not what a bad boy, but what an unfaithful or incompetent mother. I have dwelt the longer on this point because it is fundamental as long as a mother imagines, as so many mothers seem to do, that obedience on the part of the child is or ought to be a matter of course, she will never properly undertake the work of training him. But when she thoroughly understands and feels that her children are not to be expected to submit their will to hers, except so far as she forms in them the habit of doing this by special training, the battle is half won. Actual Instincts of Children The natural instinct which impels her children to come at once to her for refuge and protection in all their troubles and fears is a great source of happiness to every mother. This instinct shows itself in a thousand ways. A mother one morning, I quote the anecdote from a newspaper which came to hand while I was writing this chapter, gave her two little ones books and toys to amuse them while she went to attend to some work in an upper room. Half an hour passed quietly, and then a timid voice at the foot of the stairs called out, Mama, are you there? Yes, darling. All right, then. And the child went back to its play. By and by the little voice was heard again, repeating, Mama, are you there? Yes. All right, then. And the little ones returned again, satisfied and reassured to their toys. The sense of their mother's presence, or at least the certainty of her being near at hand, was necessary to their security and contentment in their place. But this feeling was not the result of any teachings that they had received from their mother, or upon her having inculcated upon their minds in any way the necessity of their keeping always within reach of maternal protection. Nor had it been acquired by their own observation or experience of dangers or difficulties which had befallen them when too far away. It was a native instinct of the soul, the same that leads the lamb and the calf to keep close to their mother's side, and causes the unweaned babe to cling to its mother's bosom, and to shrink from being put away into the crib or cradle alone. The responsibility rests upon the mother. The mother is thus to understand that the principle of obedience is not to be expected to come by nature into the heart of her child, but to be implanted by education. She must understand this so fully as to feel that if she finds that her children are disobedient to her commands, 
leaving out of view cases of peculiar and extraordinary temptation it is her fault not theirs perhaps i ought not to say her fault exactly for she may have done as well as she knows how but at any rate her failure instead therefore of being angry with them or fretting and complaining about the trouble they give her she should leave them as it were out of the case and turn her thoughts to herself and to her own management with a view of the discovery and the correcting of her own derelictions and errors in a word she must set regularly and systematically about the work of teaching her children to subject their will to hers three methods i shall give three principles of management or rather three different classes of measures by means of which children may certainly be made obedient the most perfect success will be attained by employing them all but they require very different degrees of skill and tact on their part of the mother the first requires very little skill it demands only steadiness calmness and perseverance the second draws much more upon the mother's mental resources, and the last most of all. Indeed, as will presently be seen, there is no limit to the amount of tact and ingenuity, not to say genius, which may be advantageously exercised in the last method. The first is the most essential, and it will alone, if faithfully carried out, accomplish the end. The second, if the mother has the tact and skill to carry it into effect, will aid very much in accomplishing the result, and in a manner altogether more agreeable to both parties. The third will make the work of forming the habit of obedience on the part of the mother, and of acquiring it on the part of the child, a source of the highest enjoyment to both. But then, unfortunately, it requires more skill and dexterity, more gentleness of touch, so to speak, and a more delicate constitution of soul than most mothers can be expected to possess. But let us see what the three methods are. First method. 1. The principle is that the mother should so regulate her management of her child that he should never gain any desired end by any act of insubmission, but always incur some small trouble, inconvenience, or privation by disobeying or neglecting to obey his mother's command. The important words in this statement of the principle are never and always. It is the absolute certainty that disobedience will hurt him and not help him, in which the whole efficacy of the rule consists. It is very surprising how a small punishment will prove efficacious if it is only certain to follow the transgression. You may set apart a certain place for a prison, a corner of the sofa, a certain ottoman, a chair, a stool, anything will answer, and the more entirely everything like an air of displeasure or severity is excluded in the manner of making the preliminary arrangements the better. A mother without any tact or any proper understanding of the way in which the hearts and minds of young children are influenced will begin very likely with a scolding. Children, you were getting very disobedient. I have to speak three or four times before you move to do what I say. Now I am going to have a prison. 
The prison is to be that dark closet, and I am going to shut you up in it for half an hour every time you disobey. Now remember, the very next time. Empty threatening. Mothers who govern by threatening seldom do anything but threaten. Accordingly, the first time the children disobey her after such an announcement, she says nothing. If the case happens to be one in which the disobedience occasions her no particular trouble. The next time when the transgression is a little more serious, she thinks, very rightly perhaps, that to be shut up half an hour in a dark closet would be a disproportionate punishment. Then, when at length some very willful and grave act of insubordination occurs, she happens to be in particularly good humour for some reason, and has not the heart to shut the poor thing in the closet, or perhaps there is company present, and she does not wish to make a scene. So the penalty announced with so much emphasis turns out to be a dead letter, as the children knew it would from the very beginning. How discipline may be both gentle and efficient. With a little dexterity and tact on the mother's part, the case may be managed very differently and with a very different result. Let us suppose that some day, while she is engaged with her sewing or her other household duties, and her children are playing around her, she tells them that in some great schools in Europe, when the boys are disobedient or violate the rules, they are shut up for punishment in a kind of prison, and perhaps she entertains them with invented examples of boys that would not go to prison and had to be taken there by force and kept there longer on account of their contumacy, and also of other noble boys, tall and handsome and the best players on the grounds, who went readily when they had done wrong and were ordered into confinement and bore their punishment like men and who were accordingly set free all the sooner on that account. Then she proposes to them the idea of adopting that plan herself and asks them to look all about the room and find a great seat which they can have for their prison. One end of the sofa, perhaps a stool in the corner or a box used as a house for a kitten. I once knew an instance where a step before a door leading to a staircase served as a penitentiary, and sitting upon it for a minute or less was the severest punishment required to maintain most perfect discipline in a family of young children for a long time. When any of the children violated any rule or direction which had been enjoined upon them, as, for example, when they left the door open in coming in or going out in the winter, or interrupted their mother when she was reading instead of standing quietly by her side and waiting until she looked up from her book and gave them leave to speak to her, or used any violence towards each other by pushing or pulling or struggling for a plaything or a place, or did not come promptly to her when called, or did not obey at once the first command in any case, the mother would say simply, Mary, or James, prison. She would pronounce this sentence without any appearance of displeasure, and often with a smile as if they were only playing prison, and then in a very few minutes after they had taken the penitential seat, she would say, free, which word sent them at liberty again. Must begin at the beginning. I have no doubt that some mothers, in reading this, will say that such management 
as this is mere trifling and play and that real and actual children with all their natural turbulence insubordination and obstinacy could never be really governed by any such means i answer that whether it proves on trial to be merely trifling and play or not depends upon the firmness steadiness and decision with which the mother carries it into execution every method of management requires firmness perseverance and decision on the part of the mother to make it successful but with these qualities duly exercised it is astonishing what slight and gentle penalties will suffice for the most complete establishment of her authority i knew a mother whose children were trained to habits of almost perfect obedience and whose only method of punishment so far as i know was to require the offender to stand on one foot and count five ten or twenty according to the nature and aggravation of the offence such a mother of course begins early with her children she trains them from their earliest years to this constant subjection of their will to hers such penalties moreover owe their efficiency not to the degree of pain or inconvenience that they impose upon the offender but mainly upon their calling his attention distinctly after every offence to the fact that he has done something wrong slight as this is it will prove to be sufficient if it always comes if no case of disobedience or of wilful wrongdoing of any kind is allowed to pass unnoticed or is not followed by the infliction of the proper penalty it is in all cases the certainty and not the severity of punishments which constitutes its power. End of section 4